This is lesson number two on how to study the Bible. And this one is a big fancy word called dispensationalism. Now, I have included dispensationalism in how to study the Bible because one of the reasons we study the Bible is to build doctrine. We study to wash ourselves with the water by the word. We study because the entrance of thy word brings light. But we also study to build doctrine. In the pastoral epistles of Timothy, Timothy, and Titus, doctrine is mentioned over 17 times. That lets us know it's very critical that we have doctrine. Now, on a technical level, doctrine is you putting together a systematic series of teachings based on two or more scriptures. You can't have doctrine with one scripture. You can't have doctrine with just one scripture. So when we talk about doctrine, it's a systematic series of teachings, and we would throw in there based on at least two or three scriptures because Deuteronomy establishes the law that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. That's repeated two times in the Old Testament, two times in the Gospels, and three times in the Epistles, which is a total of seven. Seven times that verse is quoted, and uh, that lets us know that we have established a law that obeys itself by appearing two times in the Old Testament, two times in the Gospels, and three times in the Epistles. But furthermore than that, doctrine isn't just you putting together a system of a series of teachings from the scripture, but doctrine is also how you live your life. And that's a bigger definition of doctrine. It's a system of teaching by which you live. And I, I use that as a word of caution to every one of us in here and everyone listening to my voice. Just because you believe something in your mind or understand it in your mind doesn't mean it's your life doctrine. Okay. Just because you understand it with your mind, even if it's a Christian doctrine, just because you come here and you're taught it and you would say, oh, I agree with that, does not mean that's your doctrine. Because doctrine is how you live. And therefore, we all understand, well, I would say many of us have a loose understanding of the doctrine of communism. Thank God it doesn't benefit our life because we're not living by it. And every one of us understands the doctrine of homosexuality but it's not affecting our life. And I would say every one of us in here understands the doctrines of Christ. And it doesn't mean it's benefiting our life. So I just throw that out there just as an exhortation and perhaps a prodded warning. But dispensationalism, which is the subject of this lesson, is critical because it helps categorize the Bible and explain some aspects of God. We study the Bible so that we can understand the nature of our God. So let's jump in here and uh, learn a few things. Dispensationalism is the system of historical progression as revealed in the Bible, consisting of a system of stages or dispensations and God's self-revelation and God revealing himself and God's self-revelation and plan of salvation. So the word dispensational or dispensationalism is nowhere in the Bible. Dispensationalism is a theological term. And it is what is best used to explain what somebody began to observe and what theologians have observed ever since. We have to understand as Christians, the day we get born again, we don't know all there is to know about God. So we begin to study the Bible. And a hundred years after you've been born again, you still don't know everything there is to know about God. And so what happens is you have to stay in the word of God and God continues to progressively reveal himself. And so sometime in the 1800s, a man named Darby, 
John Nelson Darby, he began to work out this doctrine of dispensationalism. He began to observe it. Uh, and so he's called the father of dispensationalism. He studied the Bible. He began to see what we're going to talk about this morning, that there's a, a system of historical progression where God reveals himself and things are changing. His teachings were then taken and made popular in America by Cyrus Schofield in the Schofield Reference Bible. The Schofield Reference Bible is probably one of the best-selling reference Bibles uh, that has ever been produced. Cyrus Schofield was a theologian, and I actually, that was my first study Bible. I still have it. And I, I have Darby. Darby was a, an Irish theologian, uh, Scotch-Irish, and uh, lived 100 or so years ago. And he also was self-educated and a self-educated theologian. He studied the original Greek and Hebrew and taught himself those. And then he wrote his own translation of the Bible, which I have a copy of. It's a hard copy to come by, but it's more like King James Plus is how I describe it. Because it's written in King James language, but it takes certain words and really elaborates upon them. Uh, you can't find it by looking for Darby Bible. It's called something else, but it's the Darby translation. Anyway... And his, this, this doctrine of dispensationalism was later popularized by uh, Tim LaHaye and uh, 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 Hal Lindsey. And it's, the, the doctrine of dispensationalism has been credited with really bringing about a better understanding of eschatology. In fact, most of our eschatology and our understanding of end time events hinges upon the revelation or the doctrine of dispensationalism. Most folks, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody that disagreed with dispensationalism because it's not a controversial doctrine. It's just a way of seeing how God has progressively revealed himself. Um, the Bible can be broken down. And basically what it says is the Bible can be broken down into seven dispensations of time. And this is where you can, if you want to be convoluted, you can. Some people believe in only three dispensations. Some people believe in eight dispensations. The eighth one being future beyond the millennial reign, the age of completion, which the Bible alludes to in uh, Corinthians, but it doesn't say much about. So we just kind of stick with seven. If you want to go with eight, I won't argue with you. There might be 15 out there, but the Bible at most speaks of eight. But seven are the critical ones, and we'll look at those this morning. These breakdowns are based on God revealing himself to man and how he is interacting with man. So, all right, so what, how do we figure out when the dispensation changes? When things roll over and now, dun da da da, we have a new dispensation. Well, these, we'll, we'll, we'll see a pattern developing here, which is so critical when you study the Bible that you look for patterns because they help build precedent and they help build doctrine. These breakdowns are based on God revealing himself to man and how he is interacting with man. God never changes. He said, I'm the Lord God, I changeth not. But how he has dealt with man has changed through the dispensations of time. Each dispensation is marked by an event preventing a return to the former time frame. So what we'll be able to see is we know we have crossed over into a new dispensation when something of some event has happened and you can no longer go backwards. That marks the change in dispensation. You can't go back anymore. How do we know when you've graduated from high school? Because you graduate and you don't get to go back anymore. How do you know you graduated from kindergarten? Because they tell you so and you don't get to go back. So we're going to see this over and over again. It is critical to understand dispensationalism when studying the Bible so that the scriptures can be kept in proper context and doctrine can be accurately developed. This is very, very, very critical. That's why we're studying it. Why would we take such a heavy theological uh, topic in, in the lessons on how to study the Bible? Because if you don't understand dispensationalism, when you study the Bible, you might equal some pretty goofy stuff. 
So we're not wanting to be goofy. We're wanting to be sound in our doctrine. So points of interest as we look at this. Point number one, understanding the various dispensations is key to developing accurate Bible doctrine. So you have to know this, understand it. Number two, dispensationalism will help to sort out the various commandments we keep and don't keep and answer questions like, how come Israel got to kill their enemies and I have to love mine? (laughs) Dispensationalism. Uh, why don't we have to offer up animal sacrifices? How come David had multiple wives? How could David have multiple wives and it was not considered sin? Dispensationalism answers these kind of simple questions. Amen. And part of that understanding is that God does not change, nor does his attitude about sin change. But how he's interacting with man does change. Just like as a parent, you don't really change. Now, obviously, you're growing as a parent. But generally speaking, you're not changing, but how you relate to your child does as your child grows up, right? There even comes a time in a parent's life when if their child is rebellious, you go from saying no, 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 to popping the hand, then paddling on the bottom, and then if you're still a good southerner and you're not afraid of DCS, you'll use a belt or a wooden spoon or the happy paddle, the grace stick or whatever your family calls it, soul saver. (laughs) <laughs> and then there comes a time when you start grounding people. Same child, you haven't changed, but how you're reacting with to, or to them and interacting with them does. Then you start stripping away rights. Then there will even come a time when you're, if your child goes prodigal, you completely cut them off. You have not changed, but how you interact with your child does. You would never cut off an infant. You'd go to jail for that. If you don't cut off that prodigal adult, you don't cut off that prodigal situation, you'll be in trouble with God. You don't change, but how you're interacting and relating to that child is changing based on their knowledge and their heart. Same with God. He doesn't change, but how he's relating to us is based on our growth in his knowledge and in his revelation or revealing of himself to us. Does that make sense? I think we can really understand it. Okay. Dispensationalism will help to keep scriptures in proper context. Many scriptures can easily can be easily interpreted when you realize who is being spoken to and in what dispensation. You notice we've never had another revival called Build Me an Ark. Because <laughs> we've moved beyond that dispensation. And the Lord promised, well, somebody would say, why don't we ever build any more arks? Because the Lord said, I ain't flooding anything anymore. But he does say the church is a good place of safety when I flood the world with judgment. Amen. So here are the seven dispensations. And we're going to look at each one of these. And and if you're going to be a serious student of the Bible, uh, you may want to do more than just save this curriculum. You may want to commit these to heart or at least have a pretty good general working understanding of them. Number one is the dispensation of innocence. And we have the scriptures there that, that denote that from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3.21, or from the creation of man to his fall. That's the age or the dispensation of innocence. We don't know how long this period lasted. Uh, Some say it could have been days. Some say it could have been hundreds of years. Others have said maybe it was billions of years. And that's why the earth appears as old as it is. Um, There's all sorts of conjecture. We don't know. Somebody showed me a pretty funny online chat. You know, the hippies... Uh, and all the pro-pot people, they say, you see, God said every seed-bearing plant to use, we ought to be able to smoke weed. Why are you Christians so against it? God wouldn't make you something. God wouldn't make a plant and then ban it. And somebody posted, said, that's the very first thing God did. He made a tree and he banned it. (laughs) 
duh. Why don't you study the Bible a little deeper, you pot-smoking hippie? So the very first thing God did, so look at this beautiful tree. Don't eat of it. Oh, okay. And I'm pretty sure marijuana, if it was in the garden, didn't produce the sinful effects. Because there was no curse yet. There was no death yet. There was no psychotropic effect yet. They weren't looking for something called a, a, a drug high. They had Jesus. Amen. Want to roll something up and smoke your God? What a nut. What a deceived individual. Of course, we got preachers that smoke pot now. They won't last long. We don't know how long the age of innocence lasted. Man could not die until sin entered in. So it may have been days, weeks, months, or even years before he rebelled. In this dispensation, God revealed his desire to walk with man and to fellowship with man. So God's revealing himself during this period of time. He also revealed his desire to work with man and even delegate to man authority over the rest of creation. So in this period of time, God is revealing himself. This fits our definition. It's a season of time where God reveals part of his nature to man, but some event happens and it causes, it causes man to take a step forward and he can't go back. So in the garden, God reveals his desire. You're my finest creation. I want to walk with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to work with you. I want you to work for me and I want you to work with me and I want to reveal myself to you. And by the way, there's always going to be things off limits. Think about no sin in the garden, but there was still something off limits. And people will say, well, that's just so unfair. No, no, no. It's protection. It's safety. Uh, only rebellious people say, uh, who are you to tell me what to do? I, I say, tell me what to do. You tell me what you want done, I can do it for you. I'm not rebellious. I'm not an idiot. Rebellion kills people. Rebellion is the most successful killer on the planet. Forget about ISIS. Forget about Hitler. Forget about abortion. Rebellion, best killer on the planet. And you know what it is? Most people embrace it like a best friend and wonder why their life shrivels and dies. Rebellion. So what, what, what's the transition? What transition? Why did, why did the age of innocence end? Original sin. This was the defining moment that ended this dispensation and jump-started a new one. Original sin. Adam and Eve are kicked out. An armed angel prevents Adam and Eve from returning to the garden. Not just original sin, but a curse is declared. Curse is the fruit of the ground. Curse, curse, curse there in Genesis 3 and 4. And so we see that this ends this dispensation. An armed guard is put at the gate of the garden because God's not going to destroy the garden. God's not to blame Satan and man is to blame. And Adam and Eve are kicked out. They cannot go back. That ends the age of innocence. Their eyes are opened. Rebellion will open your eyes. And you'll wish you never had. Amen. That brings us to the second dispensation. Conscience, or others call it antediluvian or pre-flood. Ante meaning pre, pre-flood, diluvian, deluge. The pre-flood age. This lasts exactly 1,656 years. Pretty accurate. This is from the fall of man until the flood. Man became aware of his nakedness and sinfulness. Here God began to reveal his plan for salvation. The conflict between Satan and God over man intensifies and the world grows exceedingly wicked until God must send a flood to destroy sinful man. Uh, notice the Lord has not changed his heart or his mind about how he sees sin. God loves every individual, but he is going to wipe this planet out for its sinfulness. In fact, the book of Jude quotes the prophecies of Enoch, the last man to live before the flood, 
Uh, he was, excuse me, the father of Methuselah, but he walked with God and saw it. And he said, one day the Lord is coming with 10,000 upon 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all of wicked man for their exceeding wickedness and the wicked things they've said against the Lord. That's a promise. And God is looking at that day. His mercy is holding back judgment, but judgment must fall one day. Thing I have found in evangelism is God, you get around the individual, God loves the individual so much, but he looks at the society and he's disgusted by it. And what, what, a, what, what a difficult concept to grasp in your mind that one-on-one, God loves the sinner. You can sit next to them on airplanes or be next to them in the restaurant and you can feel God's heart break for them, but then you step back and look at the whole society and you can feel the heart of God wanting to just wipe it out. That's what he's going to do one day. We are running out of time. And God will be justified in every sinner he wipes out. Because he's already declared whosoever will can be born again. And they have mocked his Christ and his Savior. So, man's consciousness here in the age of the antediluvian, man's consciousness here is not enough to restrain his sin. His conscience is seared. He's aware of sin and he's embracing it. And he must have a savior. And God reveals all that from once Adam and Eve sinned all the way up to the flood. And the Lord tells uh, Noah, you need to build me a boat. You build me a boat because I'm sending you a flood. And the funny thing it says of Noah is that by faith, he would move with fear and we should be as well. We should have a reverential fear knowing that our God means business. He built a boat and he only saved his family. And the Bible says by faith, he condemned the world. Do you know faith has condemning power? When I walk in it and you don't, you're condemned. When, when I walk in it and you realize you don't, you're condemned. And Noah's faith condemned the wicked world around him. So what was the transition out of this dispensation? Man becomes exceedingly wicked. The great flood destroys the earth. There is no former world for Noah and his family to return to. You can't go back. It's all wiped away. The bodies are covered in mud. You can't find them. The whole world's covered in sediment and silt to the tallest mountain. And so here we see the end of this dispensation, conscience. Now, these are short ones. These are all covered in the first few books of Genesis. So you may not like, well, what's the big deal? When we start to get into the, the dispensation of law versus the dispensation of grace or the church age, you'll understand a lot of this. Brings us to the third one, human government. Human government only lasts 429 years. So notice there's no really rhyme or reason or pattern as to the length of time, but it, really it's man triggering these changes. Just like your child will trigger how you have to relate to them. You just say, I would have never thought there came a day where I'd have to ground you or take your car away, or I never thought there was a day where I'd have to disown you. God set it up from the beginning. I want to have perfect peace in paradise with you. That's what God wanted. But man just kept getting stupider and stupider and stupider and dumber and dumber. And God had to keep changing how he was interacting with man because he made a promise he was going to take care of man and love man and redeem man. So 429 years. From the flood to Abraham, this is called the years of human government because man gets off the boat and begins to build great cities. As the earth repopulates, cities and communities develop along with governments and societies. Babel is the most noted. The early Babylonians led by King Nimrod decide to reach God by works, a man-made tower. 
God confounds the languages and the people are scattered. Now, if you study Satanism or the occult any, and you shouldn't, but I have dabbled into it, not looking for demons, because you can preach the gospel and find them plenty enough. You can have a church and find lots of them. But just in studying theology, you'll find out that Nimrod began the great pagan occult awakening, and he, he's probably more than likely who Lucifer appeared to and began what, what they call the dark arts. Everything in Satanism goes back to Babylon. And Nimrod and his wife, they developed the worship of Chemosh, and uh, Nimrod and his wife were basically demon sorcerers. And when Nimrod died, his wife mysteriously got pregnant. And she said, it must be a miracle. <laughs> like, um, no, I think you slept with somebody. She declared it was a, a miraculous divine conception. And that baby was born, that baby died, and that baby was raised from the dead three days later. That is the pagan cult of Chemosh. Started in Babylon right after the flood. And in the days of Ezekiel, Israel was still worshiping Chemosh. Now, the days of Ezekiel, let's see, that's 4,000 years later. Still worshiping this miraculous baby that died and was raised from the dead three days later. That sounds like another story I know that was intended to save all of mankind. Babylon right after the flood, uh, human government. It lets you know what happens when you let men govern things. That's why the prophecy of Isaiah says, the Lord upon his shoulder must be the government because nobody on planet earth knows how to govern anything. <laughs> so they make this tower, God confounds the language and the people are scattered. All right, so what's the transition here? Those are the major events of that dispensation. Abram is called out from the world and away from Babel's influence because he was living in Ur of the Chaldees down among the influence of Babel. You look on the map, he's right there on the, uh, the Tigris River, right there, the Euphrates River, uh, in what is actually Baghdad, which is Babylon. So the Lord calls him out of there so he escapes all this influence and the ramifications of the fall of Babylon. And God begins to talk with one singular man who apparently had something in his heart that says, I want God. That's what he begins to do. He is promised a son. He leaves Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham or Abram can never return to this former life. So this, this human government ends when God picks a man, not because he's any special, but because this man's heart pleases God. That's how you get God to pick you. Your heart has to please him. There's a doctrine called the doctrine of election. Well, the Greek word is electos. It just means to select. Well, and I always like to use the example of dodgeball when we were in grade school because you all, dodgeball was fun because you got to inflict pain on your friends and it was lawful. And, and the teachers, I think they had a sadistic pleasure in watching kids play dodgeball themselves. Now I think it's outlawed because, you know, it might hurt a kid's psyche to get beamed in the face with the dodgeball. It doesn't hurt their psyche, it hurts their face. Let you know how smart psychologists are. Anyway, what were the, what were the criteria for selecting your dodgeball team? Awesome. You wanted awesome on your team. That's why you select them. So what's the criteria for God selecting you? Humility. That's what God calls awesome. When you're prideful, God doesn't pick you. He resists you. And when your life is resisted, it stinks. If you have a lot of kids, you know that you're always resisting one of them. It's like you're playing the bongos or something or it's whack-a-mole. 
You're always resisting one and loving on one. And then you got to put that one down and resist it. Then you got to, re- that's humility. So why was Abraham selected? No other reason, but his heart pleased God. His heart sat there in Ur of the Chaldees and probably said, this place stinks. Why else would you be so eager to leave wealth and protection? Except that you said, this place is wicked. Ur of the Chaldees, Babylon. This place stinks. I want more. There's got to be more. There's got to be a God out there. And God appears to him and says, if you leave this place, I'll make you the father of many nations. Done and done and I'm out of here. So that brings us into the dispensation of promise from Genesis eleven nine to Exodus 19. 430 years, a lot more Bible, but 430 years from Abraham or the promise given to Abraham to the giving of the law. When the law is given, the promise, the dispensation of promise is stopped. God calls a man named Abram out of a city called Ur to follow after him. He promises to make Abram the father of many nations. Abram obeys and Isaac, the promised son, becomes the beginning of a new people, Israel, the lineage through which Jesus Christ will come into the earth. As prophesied, Abraham's seed becomes a great nation while in captivity. Israel cries to God for deliverance and Moses delivers them. Those are the major events of this dispensation. All right, so what causes the transition? We have 430 years of a dispensation of promise where the promise is you're going to be a great nation. You're going to be a great nation. And sure enough, that promise comes to pass, but not in the best of places. Everybody wants to blossom and bloom, you know, in a, in a vineyard or in a garden. But sometimes the best flowers grow on the side of a, cr- a craggy cliff on the middle of nowhere land. Sometimes the most beautiful flowers in the middle of a desert. Nobody wants to bloom in the bad places. But that's where this nation bloomed was in slavery. Just to prove God's hand was on them. If you're always making decisions to be comfortable, you're probably a carnal Christian. If you're always making decisions to be comfortable, you're probably carnal. Carnal, I don't mean sinful. I just mean chasing the whims of the flesh and chasing ease. But God made this promise and it came to pass in the worst of conditions. So what's the transition here? Abraham's seed flourishes in Egypt for 430 years. Moses and Israel flee Egypt. Egypt is judged. Israel crosses the Red Sea and can never return to slavery. How can you go back when there's no nation left? How can you go back when the army's going glub glub at the bottom of the Red Sea and all of their tanks, chariots are gone? And, and they're even their, their captain of their host, Pharaoh, gone. Their living God, Pharaoh, gone, wiped out by water. God sneezed and wiped them out. With the blast of his nostrils, he opened the Red Sea, and then he brought it back down. You can't go back, and yet uh, so many Christians try to go back to Pharaoh, go back to the world. You can't go back. It will kill you. And some people are hell-bent on going back to slavery and it will kill you. In fact, First Peter says, uh, it would be better for you if you choose to go back that you had never been saved in the first place. That's a strong word from the Lord and Peter. It would be better for you that you were never born again in the first place than to be born again and go back. But the Bible says, don't fulfill the proverb that says the sow that was washed has returned to her mire and the dog has returned to his puke. Don't do that. You can't go back. But we know that in the wilderness, lots of them said, oh, it was better in Egypt. It was better when we were slaves because at least we had good food to eat. And you were slaves. Remember there, you were complaining. You had, I don't even, I doubt they talk about, oh, the garlics and the leeks and the melons is what they complain about numbers. 
I don't think you had any of that because you barely had mud and straw to make brick. But it's just amazing how dumb mankind can get after God has done so much for him. Amen. So that's the transition. The, the, the dispensation of promise ends when they cross this Red Sea and they go up to the mountain of God and they get the law because now a new transition has begun, a new dispensation. You can't go back. God delivered you. You can't go back. We might could stop here and interject that we, in our lives we have dispensations. It's almost like uh, the roller coaster. You know, you get up there and it's like click, 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 click. You can't go back. You don't know where the Lord's taking you. It's just up. And you might have the dispensation in your own life when you're just a baby Christian and your mistakes are a mile wide, but you're just so hungry for God. But there comes a time when you take a step up and now you can't go back. In fact, Hebrews says we're not of those that draw back unto party time. What? What's the P word? Judgment. Perdition. And yet Christians try to. Everything the Lord's doing here is progressively, not liberal, you know, homosexual, transgender progressive, progressing in the things of God. It's marching all of mankind towards the glory of God Almighty. And if you're in your own life, if you'll walk with Jesus Christ, he will progress you upward and you cannot go back. Now, we know we have a free will and we can if we want, but you shouldn't. Every, it's called backsliding. I wish it wasn't as easy as it is. It's, it's easier to go, it's always easier to go down. It's always so much harder to go back up. All right, we're actually meddling in more business than I really want to in teaching on this, but... It's what pastors do. We smell funky smells on the sheep and we have to go get the Febreze till we can get the fire hose. <laughs> Brings us to our fifth dispensation, the law, Exodus chapter 20 to the gospels. That is a long dispensation, 1,524 years to be exact, from the giving of the law into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God wanted Israel to be different. Here's the major events of the dispensation of law. God wanted Israel to be different from, um, among the fallen world, so he gave them his standard, his word, in the form of the law and the Ten Commandments. God related to his people through the law of Moses. Now they've been given a law. But notice, they're only accountable for what's been given them. This answers the question, how could some of these guys have multiple wives? Because the Lord didn't say you couldn't. There was no law that said you couldn't. And so David had a couple of wives, six or seven of them. That doesn't mean we start Mormon doctrine and we start polygamy because the New Testament comes along and says the husband of one wife. Oh, so we've added an extra law. That was originally in the garden anyway. You know, the Lord didn't take every rib out of Adam and leave him just a spine that just wiggles everywhere. He took one rib and made one wife. It wasn't a whole rack of ribs. Solomon must have thought he was made like a centipede or a snake or something because he had 900 of them. Bless his heart. God related to his people through the law of Moses. Israel went through many cycles of obeying the word and then obeying idols. Isn't the testimony of so many Christians today? Obeying the word, then obeying idols. Eventually, they were taken captive by their enemies, the northern kingdom by Assyria, the southern kingdom by Babylon. They remained in slavery for 70 years. And actually, the northern kingdom never came out of slavery. They were totally dissolved and absorbed by the, the uh, nations. Upon returning home to Israel, they became the subjects of the Roman Empire until well after the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the major events. We don't have time to talk about the judges, the captivity, the rebuilding of the temple, Zerubbabel's temple, uh, the 400 years of silence. But that brings us into the era of Jesus Christ. 
So what is the transition? Oh, the transition is so easy. Jesus is born, crucified, and resurrected. Sin is judged, the law is fulfilled, and the church is born. We cannot go back under the law like they were. We're not perfected by the law. We're not made righteous by the law. We're made righteous by Jesus Christ. Now we know we still have laws, but we're not fulfilling the ceremonial or the topology of the law. We, we fulfill the, the, uh, the moral code. We don't sleep with our daughters. We don't sleep with our sisters. We don't sleep with our pets. We don't sleep with heathen. We sleep with our wife or our husband, whoever we're married to. We don't worship the devil. We don't steal. We don't kill. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't bear false witness. We don't murder. Those are the things we're still doing. Those don't make us righteous, though. Those make us holy. Jesus Christ makes us righteous. So the, this transition is the easiest of them all, I think. Well, no, there's one more coming that's even easier to see. You can't go back. And that's what many of Paul's epistles were talking to the, uh, the Jews that had been born again, especially Galatians and Hebrews. Don't, don't go back. You're not going to be perfected. You're not going to be made the righteousness of God by fulfilling ceremonial law, circumcising and shaving your head and taking oaths and vows and, and turtle doves and offerings and whatnot. So that fulfills the fifth one. That's the longest, well, excuse me, one of the longest. We know the ages to come is even longer because it's ages to come, which equals eternity. The church age is already 2,000 years plus. That's the sixth dispensation. We call it the grace age or the church age. And that's Acts chapter one into the present. There's some debate among theologians. When did the church start? Was it when Jesus Christ was resurrected and breathed on his disciples? Was it day of Pentecost? Was it um, when Jesus ascended on high? Or was it 40 days later when he breathed on the early church and gave him the Holy Ghost? I honestly don't really care. I'm not going to argue with you. We're just going to say Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and here we are. He breathed on his disciples in, in, in John 21, said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Praise God. And then 40 days later, they got baptized in the Holy Ghost and spoke with tongues. Somewhere in between his resurrection and Acts 2, we got a church. So I'm not going to split hairs with you. Some folks would want to fight over this. I, I really don't care. I do like what one Methodist billboard said, though. They believed in the Acts 2 doctrinal perspective. They said the church was born in a morning prayer session. I like that. Three, three, third hour, eight, nine o'clock in the morning. So 2,000 years from the resurrection until the rapture. We don't know how long it's going to be. Really, it feels like it could be any day. It's as bad as it's getting. And it's going to get worse and the Bible says it's got to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, where those guys were wanting to have sex, a big orgy in the street with two angels. It's got to be like uh, Noah's Ark in the days of Noah. So wicked, God said, I am ready to rain. Hurry up and finish that boat. And the thing is, at the same time, everybody just goes about their business like, it's like the world doesn't even have a clue this thing's coming to an end. They don't have a clue that the judgment of God is knocking at the door. And this thing is about to be wrapped up. I still believe we have to have one more revival. God has to bring us one more. He has to. Who knows what that will do? That might buy a little bit more time or it might be short-lived and mocked. And on top of that, a remnant has never been a lot of people. And on top of that, remnants in their revivals have never been able to turn anything around. It's always short-lived. And then flesh goes back to flesh. I mean, if you think about it, they came off Noah's Ark. They heard the story about God wiping everything out and they said, uh, quick, let's not worship God, let's worship ourselves. People are dumb. So 
This thing's wrapping up. So what are the major issues or the major events of the church age? The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are transitional books. They transition mankind from the dispensation of the law to the dispensation of grace. Jesus Christ ministered as a prophet under the law, but prepared the Jews for the church age. We are currently in the church age, commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel of salvation to every creature. Notice that's the great commission. We preach the gospel. We perfect the saints. We have to be careful as Christians. We don't get caught up with social projects. Social projects, social, what are they called? Social outreaches. That is such the flavor of the day in the church. There isn't an ounce of power to it. We are called to do good works, but half the church is infected and infested with a bunch of good work philosophy because it makes us look cool in the eyes of the world. I'm going to deal with it in, in service this morning about coming out from among them. There's a problem when our wicked president wants to fellowship with some holy preachers because they're, in the, they're, they're preaching against the slave trade. And why is there common ground with a Muslim president who just wants to use your megachurch because you happen to have a little side ministry that's a social cause? Now, I'm all for stopping the slave trade, but there's a problem. You're not. You're not. It's a horrible thing. The sex trade is a horrible, wretched thing. Child trafficking is a horrible thing. We're called to preach the gospel. And just so you know how ineffective we are at stopping the slave trade, the revelation tells us that in the days of Babylon, after the church is gone, during the seven years of tribulation, the Bible notes how powerful and how beautiful, excuse me, not beautiful, how uh, massive the Babylonian slave trade is. Still slaves here after the church is gone. That's how ineffective we are. So again, if you're getting people born again, great. But I've got something in me and I haven't been able to quite put my finger on it as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel. What is the underlying perversion of all these social causes the church is undertaking? It may just be it's distracting us from preaching the gospel that is the only thing that saves people. That is the only thing God confirms with signs following. The word. Now, there's some good ministries out there that work to stop the slave trade and do all that. And I, I believe God blesses them because they're getting people born again. And, and we should do that. But we're called to preach the gospel. We're not called to rescue kitties. We're not called to put shoes on everybody in the planet. We're called to preach the gospel. Whatever you want to do to draw a crowd and preach the gospel, more power to you. But I'm telling you, this church, this, this post-hippie society is so caught up with good works and social cause and social change, we've lost power. You show me one example of any preacher in the book of Acts that is our role model stopping to do social causes. They stopped, they preached the gospel. They stopped and they preached the gospel. Jesus fed the 5,000 after they listened to him for three days straight. He fed the 8,000 after they had been with him three days and had nothing. So he rewarded them for their fasting. All right, that's the church age. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. That may be a very controversial statement, not the law grace thing, but the whole social cause thing. It's nothing but a bunch of hippies trying to steer the church is all it is. What's the transition in the church age? The church is raptured away to heaven to be with the Lord and receive glorified bodies. That's the most obvious transition, I think. When the church is gone, show's over. The church age ends. The world is judged by God throughout the tribulation. We cannot return. 
Hallelujah. Don't want to return. Don't want to return. Why would you want to return now? Don't you see now that there's little measurements of judgment when you try to return to the world now? Why, if you're raptured, would you want to come back and enjoy the three and a half years of great tribulation? When God pours out his wrath in seven bowls and seven vials that only angels can handle and wipe out a third of the mankind. God does that in his wrath. Why would you want to go back? Don't you know that even the book of Ephesians says right now the wrath of God is poured out upon the sons of disobedience? For which things the wrath of God comes, the book of Ephesians, for which things the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience? Right now. The church isn't cursed, but sin is. And so when we fellowship with sin, we can't help but drink of the curse. God's not cursing you, sin is. He's the whole time saying, come on, don't do that. Why drink that? You know, when you drink liquid plumber, that manufacturer isn't killing you. Liquid plumber is killing you because you drank it. In fact, liquid plumber says, do not ingest. If you ingest, well, bye. (laughs) You can't blame God when sin kills you. I didn't get a chance. There was somebody I wanted to talk to this week and I had a word from the Lord for him. I want to tell him, Sweetheart, sin has a paycheck. Death. Folks still choose to go back. Brings us to our seventh and final dispensation, the millennial kingdom, the reign of Christ. Hallelujah. Guess how long the millennial kingdom lasts? A millennium. Not the millennium falcon, but a thousand years. This is the reign of Christ. This is what everything's been working to on planet Earth. Interesting, the millennial reign is a thousand years less than the church age. I have no understanding for that. I don't know what, just an observation. The reign of Christ, you'd think, would be a lot longer than what mankind has been able to do under the church age. But it's only a thousand years. This is the thousand year reign of Christ. The millennial kingdom is Christ's kingdom. He will reign as king from Jerusalem. His reign will be defined by peace and righteousness. Christians will play varying roles in his kingdom as rewards for how they lived in the church dispensation. I like that. That means the grandma who was faithful, she might rule as a governor. And the mega TBN preacher who embezzled, squandered, and slept around, he may not even be there. Or at best, street sweeping. In the millennial reign, there'll still be human beings with us as glorified bodies reigning over them. So I think there'll still be sewer lines to maintain. Maybe some of those dirty Christian television preachers will be maintaining the sewer lines for grandma's city of uh, New California, our new country of California. We don't know how it's going to be, but we just know it's alluded to. Transition. The millennial kingdom does come to an end. And in that transition, Satan is judged. He's actually unleashed at the end of that thousand years. Uh, The living rebels are judged. And the wicked dead are judged. A lot of judgment. You know, our God is a God of righteous judgment. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And then the ages to come begin. We cannot go back. We won't go back. The ages to come is what some have called the eighth dispensation. But in the end of this thousand years, Satan will be unleashed where he's been bound for a thousand. And he will, God will give humankind that's still, because there'll be people born during that thousand years. There'll be babies and societies and development and etc. He has to give them one more opportunity to choose life or choose death because he has to fulfill his word, choose life or death. And he'll give them the open book test, choose life therefore. And yet there'll be an army come together around Lucifer one last time. And it, it's not even worth mentioning in the Bible because he just says, and he'll cast them into the lake of fire. It doesn't even, not even given a verse and a half. 
They'll just be judged. They'll try to gather themselves together and they'll be judged. And that's the second death. Everybody will be brought up and cast down again and then the ages to come begin. And eternal damnation lasts just as long as eternal life forever and ever and ever. We will not go back. So let me, in conclusion here, here are the trans-dispensational qualities of God. We started off by saying God does not change, but how he deals with mankind has, depending on man's state of dumb and rebellion or obedience. The following qualities and acts of God can be found in every dispensation, showing you that God doesn't change. Further proving his immutable changing ability, how he interacts with man based on how he's revealed himself to man, it just does not change. So in every dispensation, there's mercy. You see mercy in the garden. You see mercy with Noah. You see mercy uh, throughout the law. You see mercy in the church age. You'll see mercy even during the tribulation. Love. For God so loved the world. You, get, you see love through every dispensation. Forgiveness. You see forgiveness. You know, the fact that he didn't just squash Adam and Eve in the garden as soon as they took a hold of that fruit Let you know, love, mercy, forgiveness, grace. We see grace in every dispensation. The Bible says Noah found grace in the sight of God. Provision, God was always taking care of his people. Everywhere he went, he was providing for them. Communion with man. We see that in every dispensation, God is dealing with man. He wants to commune with mankind. Hatred of sin, this has never changed. Just because our culture is on the bobsled to hell doesn't mean God has changed his hatred of sin. We can't say something, well, the culture is changing. We need to adjust the gospel. The gospel does not adjust. It is not adjustable. I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, but we don't change the gospel. God still hates sin. And you and I, the beginning of wisdom is to hate evil. We don't hate people, we hate evil. Healing is available under every dispensation. Deliverance, didn't God deliver Adam and Eve and he took care of them. And of course, salvation. So these are just a few. There's 10 of them there, but there's others that these are, tra- I call them trans-dispensational. They, they run through all dispensations. They, tr- they prove that God doesn't change, but how he's having to deal with mankind based on how God has revealed himself to man does change. So that is a lot to say in 45 minutes. Maybe the more you listen to it, the more you study it, the more you can get a hold of it. It will help you put your doctrine together better as you study the Bible. Again, this is not a controversial doctrine, this theology of dispensationalism. It's just a way of evaluating how the scripture's laid out and seeing these milestones or checkpoints with God's dealings with mankind. And I trust you can understand it and, and, and comprehend it. It's pretty easy once you see the pattern. Man does something, God has to reveal more of himself, and man can't go back to where he just came from. But may that also speak to us today, that we go forward, we cannot go back. When God intervenes in our life and reveals another aspect of himself to us personally, it makes us more accountable. We can't get away with what we used to get away with. Maybe that's the best way of saying it. Once you know more, you can't get away with it. It's going to be worse because your boss is going to say, didn't we just have this discussion? I gave you mercy the first time because you were the new hire. You do this one more time, you're fired. It went from being, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't instruct you to, now you're in big trouble. You do the same with your children. Honey, if I have to tell you that one more time, it's going to be a bad spanking. Police will give you a warning, but if you blow through his traffic zone every, every morning like that, you are getting nailed. Same thing with the Lord God. Amen. Father, I thank you for these Sunday school lessons. Bless our understanding. 
Bless our comprehension of the word. Give us a greater heart and a greater hunger to study your Bible. Bless us, Lord, as we hunger and thirst after your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.